Good morning, everybody. I wish to start by thanking the organizers and um, particularly Professor Stacy Friend and uh, Paloma for uh, getting me here. Uh, it's a nice chance to rejoin with uh, Murray and uh, to share with you some uh, thoughts about uh, the topic we are about to address all day, uh, film immersion from the very peculiar, limited, coarse, oversimplistic point of view of the brain body. I want to be clear, I'm not here uh, to lecture on how the brain will solve all the problems. We are just beginning investigating empirically this fascinating aspect of uh, human creative expression, film engagement, and uh, I think I, I, I am moderately uh, optimistic that uh, this line of research can uh, add something to this very multifarious and um, complex picture. Moving images and the body. Uh, one of the things I learned through my uh, collaboration with scholars in the humanities is that uh, a good starting move is to look back uh, in order to see how poorly original you are. <laughs> we think we I think in a way we keep rediscovering the wheel and uh, um, a very interesting case about film engagement uh, uh, is offered by, uh, for example, people like Hugo Münstenberg. Hugo Münstenberg was invited to Harvard uh, uh, by William James. Uh, he initially was uh, incredibly skeptical about the artistic value of film. He had a quite uh, snob-like uh, attitude. Then finally he allowed himself to go to a movie theater, watch the movie, and it, 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 has, it probably was a moment of ignition for him. So he decided to look carefully into what happened in the first place to him and all the moviegoers, and came up with this very interesting book that he published in 1916. So we are in the early uh, age of film, The Photoplay, a psychological study, where he's... Um, willing to investigate the means by which the moving pictures impress us, engage us, and appeal to us, and trying to uncover the psychological factors that shape up our film experience. And one interesting point being made in this uh, incredibly uh, stimulating book, particularly if read now by people like me um, investigating the relationship between the brain-body and a bunch of things, including uh, uh, film reception, is the following point. Film experience might be described as a cured simulation of key mental and bodily function. And this is exactly what we are up to with our empirical investigation. Um, I could have picked many other examples, just um, a second one from Krakauer, uh, return to physical film, return to physical reality. Let's suppose that differently from other type of images, film images hit the spectator's senses in the first place, mobilizing him physiologically before his intellectual reaction. And also, it appears that seeing it movement uh, be endowed with a resonance effect, evoking spectator's kinesthetic reaction, muscles reflexes, motor impulses or things alike. In any case, objective movement acts as a physiological stimulus. 
And it's no coincidence that in France, in the early 20s of last century, uh, French filmology uh, uh, was investigating also empirically uh, the reaction of spectators. Uh, by the way, employing uh, um, empirical uh, means to investigate spectators' reaction, which are incredibly similar to the uh, new emphasis more and more scholars are putting on interoception. They were showing different film clips, comedy, uh, drama film, to spectators while measuring the heart activity. And they were able to discriminate different heart reaction according to the style and plot uh, in the film uh, they were showing. A further element that uh, I think uh, we could bring in in our discussion, and that at the very least has been always my main compass in this empirical investigation. I started with the visual art, uh, uh, collaborating with an art historian, uh, David Friedberg. So the idea being put forward here by John Dewey in artist experience is um, that in order to better understand art and its reception, we should perform a sort of aesthetic epoche uh, of the material we want to study. In other words, we should bracket the uh, intrinsic aesthetic artistic quality of the material we want to learn about uh, and uh, placing it within a continuum uh, with uh, our daily reality and the way our brain body deals with it. In order to understand, writes uh, Dewey, the meaning of artistic products we have to forget them for a time, to turn aside from them, and have recourse to the ordinary forces and conditions of experience that we do not usually regard as aesthetic. I think uh, bearing in mind that the aesthetic value shouldn't be left out, uh, I think that as, as a starting assumption, this uh, uh, is very promising. Okay, let's move to film immersion. Uh, what I'm about to say comes mainly, if not entirely, from uh, a, a collaboration I started 10 years ago with this young guy, uh, here happily uh, together with Claudia Cardinale, <laughs> and, uh, who uh, visited Parma for a showing of uh, a, movie, um, a beautiful movie shot in Parma, La Ragazza uh, con la Valigia, uh, uh, the girl with the, brief, uh, with the suitcase. Um, together we, we started, I learned, uh, all I learned uh, about film uh, is due to this collaboration with, with Michele, who 10 years ago came to me and said, well, I see you are dealing with uh, uh, artworks, static images, I think moving images are even more uh, interesting, uh, and uh, why don't we do something together? So I started studying, uh, reading, uh, uh, confronting with him, and after a few years, we decided to start some empirical investigation, which so far dealt with two elements, and it will become clearer uh, as uh, my talk develops, uh, film editing and camera movements, and today I'm dealing exclusively with camera movements. So we wrote this book, uh, which is uh, finally translated in English and hopefully should appear next year by OOP, uh, I don't know whether they will keep the same title, the Empathic Screen Cinema Neuroscience. But uh, the book basically deals with film immersion and film uh, engagement. 
So the experience of immersion with moving images, uh, according to our approach, can be decomposed into its bodily and neurobiological grounding elements. And this hopefully would accomplish a better understanding of what the concepts referring to film aesthetics are made of. So we are not using film to learn more about the brain, it's the other way around. We are using our empirical study of the brain body in order to have a better understanding of film and its aesthetic uh, values. Squeeze to a nutshell, the, the, the idea is the following. Cinematic experience does not depend just on concepts and proposition, which play a major role, I'm not neglecting that, but relies on sensory motor schemas, which get the viewer literally in touch with the screen, uh, here uh, in, in a way uh, anticipated by these uh, wonderful scenes from Bergman's uh, persona, shaping a multimodal form of simulation which exploits all the potentialities of our brain-body system. How can we bring in empirical research to investigate this topic uh, with a variety of methods, behavioral, you show clips to people and ask questions and what you measure is, for example, their reaction time. You can investigate the way they explore with their gaze uh, uh, the images that you are projecting on the screen through eye tracking. You can monitor their emotional, physical engagement with the images by recording their facial muscle activity or in a less invasive way by means of functional uh, uh, infrared uh, imaging. Uh, uh, literally, you measure the variation of the uh, uh, blood flow in the capillary vessels of the face, which is an indirect way uh, to see to which extent the orthosympathetic and the parasympathetic branches of the autonomic system, which by the way is everything but autonomous, it's fully integrated with the remaining part of the brain and body, so we should uh, uh, designate it in a different way. Uh, high density EEG that enables you to record uh, uh, brain activity in the best possible ecological way. You still have this funny thing on your head but at the very least you are sitting in front of a screen while when you rely on fMRI uh, you have to project your images uh, through goggles or through a mirror which reflects uh, the images appearing on uh, a screen which is outside this dark and noisy and claustrophobic tunnel. So it's the, uh, you're as far away as possible with the real experience you entertain in a movie theater or sitting on your couch at home. So the hypothesis I want to uh, uh, propose to our discussion is that embodied simulation, uh, which I take to be a model of perception and imagination, generates the peculiar quality of the embodied seeing as that plays a significant role in film experience. And in order to do that, I, 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 I need first to demolish uh, uh, literally uh, um, common wisdom about the relationship between vision and the brain. If you ask a hundred people in the street how do we see the world, uh, most of them will say, if anything, well, through the activation of the visual part of the brain, which of course is incredibly important if you suffer a damage uh, in a variety of locations in the back of your head you will have ensuing deficits about 
the possibility to perceive form, uh, recognize faces, perceive movements and the like, but this is not the whole story. There's a lot more than that. So, in a way, we are all uh, uh, multimodal integrators or synesthetes. When we open our eyes and gaze uh, at the world, there are many other parts of the brain that simultaneously kicked, uh, kick in. So observing the world always encompasses the activation of motor, somatosensory, emotion-related, and interoceptive neural mechanisms. So it's a multimodal, beautifully integrated enterprise. Along the years, we have been able to reassign, so to speak, in a very crude way, pardon me, this is a crude expression, functions to different brain regions. And for example, we learned that the motor part of our brain is not exclusively dealing with the control and uh, online monitoring of our overt behavior, but plays a major role also in perception. So frontal parietal motor areas are neurally integrated, not only to control action, but also to serve the function of building an integrated bodily formatted mapping of actions performed by others, objects, and locations to which actions are directed. So I'll, I'll make just one example. The neuron that control my reaching towards my wristwatch will also respond to tactile stimuli applied to the very same body part, to visual stimuli uh, that happen to move around uh, uh, my arm. Other type of neuron that control the grasping of this object will be activated also when I'm merely gazing at this object. And uh, this simulation or reuse of the same neural resources that we normally employ to actively interact with this object uh, play a major role also in our perception of the very same objects. And when come to intersubjectivity, where the visual stimulus I'm gazing at is uh, uh, some individual performing some action, mirror neurons become relevant. We discovered them uh, in the premotor cortex of macaques. Uh, they have a, a, a very prominent feature. They not only control the execution of goal-directed uh, um, motor acts, like, for example, grasping objects, but they uh, become active also when the macaque is just looking at someone else performing um, the very same action. So they, uh, in a way, um, constitute uh, uh, a neurofunctional binding uh, uh, between the perceiver and the agent. Much more recently, our colleagues uh, in Tübingen University brought the macaques to the movies, so to speak. So they were interested in confronting uh, the responsiveness of mirror neurons when the action was actively performed in front of them by um, a physically present experimenter with a situation where the action was filmed and macaques were looking at it when projected on a bidimensional computer screen. Here <laughs> you have two examples, two neurons uh, being tested in three conditions while uh, watching the action being performed by the experimenter, the orange trace. When looking at the action projected on the screen, the black trace, and the gray trace is a non-action control stimulus, a static object being presented 
for an equal amount of time on the screen. Uh, roughly speaking, uh, half of the neurons that were tested uh, uh, with this paradigm uh, don't bother uh, um, if the action is filmed or naturalistic. They show the same intensity of discharge. Each of these tiny little dots is a single action potential recorded by this specific neuron where the monkey is either gazing at the real action, the filmed action, or the controlled stimulus. And there is no significant difference in the responsiveness of this particular class of mirror neurons when the action is naturalistic or filmed. The other half of the neuron uh, make a difference. They tend to respond more vigorously to the naturalistic action, but they also show uh, a significant response to the filmed action. So this, I think, it's um, a very interesting result because it's suggesting that even in a non-linguistic species, part of the neural resources that are employed to map what's going on in the real world are also coming into play when what the individual is looking at is not the real world, but its representation uh, by means of a technological medium. Briefly, in humans, uh, here I'm summarizing a lot, uh, we, um, we realized that uh, the very same part of our brain that normally uh, enable us to perform goal-directed actions, communicative actions, body movements, uh, while we are having this uh, uh, workshop today, uh, at Sadler as well, uh, there is a meeting, uh, I got an email from Beatrice Calvo Merino on uh, uh, dance and uh, neuroscience. So body movements, apparently gratuitous body movements, in humans, interestingly, not in macaques, are also able to evoke uh, the activation of the very same brain areas that uh, uh, not surprisingly, enable us to perform those very same actions and movements. But there's more than that. Uh, uh, the same mechanism of simulation, of reuse, also applies to uh, emotions. Uh, here I picked uh, our first paper on uh, uh, physical disgust. So namely, the very same portion of this uh, deeply uh, located part of our brain, the anterior insula, which normally is active when we uh, experience physical disgust through olfaction or taste, is also active when we witness the facial expression of disgust on the face of someone else. This is a tactile area, uh, the second somatosensory area, in handbooks of cognitive neuroscience is listed among the part of our brain that uh, uh, enable us to localize tactile sensation uh, on our body. Well. The very same voxels that are active when a part of my body is touched are also active when I witness a tactile experience uh, being uh, experienced by someone as being touched on an equivalent part of his or her body. So we are dealing with a, a basic mechanism of our brain which maps the sensory representation of the actions, emotion or sensations of another onto the perceiver's own motor, visceral motor, or tactile, bodily formatted representation of those very same action, emotion and sensation. And it is through this mapping, this is our hypothesis, that enable us to perceive the action, emotion or sensation of another as if we were living in a similar body, performing a similar action 
or recognizing from within a similar emotion or sensation. This is not the unique way to make sense uh, of what the other are doing or feeling. Suppose that your uh, facial muscles are congenitally paralyzed, is what we call the Medius syndrome. So you cannot move your muscles. And the evidence is uh, uh, a bit ambiguous. There are papers claiming that even if you're not able to mimic uh, the facial expression of others, you can tell a happy from uh, a fearful face apart. My question is, uh, however, this learned ability to discriminate between two, two different gestalts of, of facial expression square with the full understanding of those emotions that comes through this simulation business? Probably not. So we are, it's, it's never an all or nothing issue. I mean, we do not have yet the instrument, we are working on that, to find a significant and meaningful correlation between what we are discovering by asking questions to the brain body and the phenomenal experience that goes hand in hand with that. There are approaches like microphenomenology that are uh, trying uh, to bridge this gap, uh, although this is uh, new developing approaches that need to be validated uh, um, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll try to do it in, in the near future, perhaps. Okay, so embodied simulation by means of the neural reuse of different brain regions for a different purpose, not just to experience something or to do something, but to map what others are doing and others are experiencing, enables us to map space, objects, actions, emotions and sensations in this very peculiar way, which is not unique, but has a unique phenomenal quality from within. Embodied simulation can therefore physiologically ground the fundamental role of empathy in aesthetic experience. The activation of motor or visual areas during mental motor or visual imagery, this is a further element that I think is relevant to aesthetics, likely defines the experiential backbone not only of what we perceive, but also of what we experience by merely imagining it. So the same part of my brain that uh, kicks in when I do something or when I watch someone doing something is also active when I imagine doing the very same thing. Of course, wired to different areas, otherwise we couldn't tell the difference between imagination and reality, which we normally do. So one way to address film uh, uh, immersion uh, through this approach is to uh, start from film style. And the word style, like many words, has uh, uh, a performative origin. This is probably the oldest iPad. Uh, uh, it's a wax tablet on which people were taking notes uh, by using a, a stylus, uh, a thin stick. So style comes from this. And through a different use of uh, uh, the technical devices that enable uh, people to shoot a film, you can accomplish incredibly different uh, um, aesthetic outcomes. Here I just picked three movies by uh, one of my favorite, uh, and I'm sure many of you, uh, director Stanley Kubrick, where in these three different movies he plays uh, with film style uh, 
And uh, what we get through this very specific use of, uh, of film style uh, assign a different aesthetic qualities to these uh, movies. In, in, um, in uh, Barry Lyndon, uh, he makes extensive usage of, of the uh, zooming. Uh, the Shining is probably the first time uh, uh, the Steadicam is used uh, to its full uh, uh, expressive power. In the first part of Full Metal Jacket, the bootcamp part of the, of the movie, there is a, a pervasive use of the, the dolly. Um, and this uh, uh, stylistically uh, helps you uh, immersing uh, in this uh, uh, kind of uh, weird atmosphere uh, that all the, uh, the young soldiers uh, are experiencing. Uh, while the second part of the movie, uh, which takes place uh, supposedly in Vietnam, is mainly shot by a handheld camera and, and the impact on, on spectators is completely different. So new film theories have largely accepted the idea that style should be conceived of by starting from the bodily engagement implied by it. Three quotes, an early Murray Smith, 1995 motor mimicry, like a low-level physiological mechanism which constantly probes the meaning of our environment and accompanies our viewing of classical film like a sixth sense. Much more recently from his last book, Film, Art and the Third Culture and Naturalized Aesthetics of Film, <coughs> he uh, uh, deals with the notion of empathy in narrative arts which might uh, uh, widen in scope and intensity because the crafted environment of narrative artifacts enables the authors of such objects to shape and thus to distill and concentrate our responses to a high degree by means of a specific engineering, the red emphasis is mine, of an object precisely designed to elicit empathy. So um, in the following part of my talk, I will focus on how one can precisely design uh, this particular object, which is the film, uh, <coughs> to elicit empathy. So film style creates the condition for an embodied film cognition, and in so doing, it establishes a continuity between our embodied reality and our embodied visions, very much like the neurons I show you uh, being recorded from macaques in those uh, two peculiar experimental conditions. The embodied simulation-based approach can foster specific experiments on different stylistic solutions uh, with the goal to help explaining stylistic changes caused by the constant evolution of viewers' ability in playing a role in a virtual world. David Baldwin in 1977 wrote, camera movements are a persuasive surrogate for our subjective movement through an objective space. So that's why we decided to start this empirical investigation starting uh, with camera movements. Uh, this study run by Catherine Hyman, who is, uh, back then was a PhD student of mine in Parma, and now uh, she's an uh, assistant professor in Aarhus University in Denmark. We uh, tried to contrast uh, four different ways uh, of filming the very same scene, a very simple scene, against uh, this background, two actors, a male and a female actors, uh, were looking at uh, an object, sitting on the table, grasping it, and looking at it. We had a variety of objects, uh, coffee cups, uh, gas lighters, uh, glasses, and the like. 
So there was uh, a first uh, fixation cross, the video clip uh, lasting three seconds. In 20% of the trials, we had catch trials where we asked questions, which required participants uh, to answer by clicking uh, one of the mouse buttons. We wanted to have the recording of brain activity also during action execution, because this would uh, uh, typically uh, lead to a desynchronization in uh, motor areas of their brain, which we use as a template in order to investigate whether this uh, motor activation was present also in the remaining 80% of the trials, where they were not moving at all, but just watching these video clips. And the video clips were filmed in four different ways. With a steel camera, with the dolly track, uh, with a zooming lens, and with the Steadicam. So we had a cameraman walking towards the table behind which the uh, male and female actors were performing those very uh, simple actions. And then we had five seconds of uh, gray screen uh, during which we were monitoring the resynchronization of brain activity in our participants. <coughs> so the results briefly are the following. The Steadicam showed stronger activation, desynchronization than all other conditions over all epochs of video clip observation until the beginning of resynchronization. So the, the pink trace is uh, the recording with the Steadicam. The lowest the trace, the highest the desynchronization, the strongest the activation of the motor part of the brain. Similar recordings in occipital electrodes monitoring the uh, electrical activity of visual areas did not produce uh, comparable results. So this is specific for the motor part of the brain. We also asked many questions to participants at the end of the experiment, showing again the same video clips, and participants perceived the movements, not surprisingly, the movements of the Steadicam as being the most natural and most resembling the movements of an approaching observer, thus eliciting the feeling that the observer herself or himself would walk towards the scene. How realistic did you find the camera movement? The Steadicam wins. How much did you feel the camera movement resembled the person movement when approaching the scene? And the Steadicam wins again. However, we had two different issues within this uh, experimental paradigm. So we see an activation of the motor cortex uh, while people are looking at video clips uh, filmed in those different ways, showing an actor performing an action. So there are two possibilities. What we see is uh, a mirroring of the action, which gets enhanced by the way the action is filmed through the use of the Steadicam, or the Steadicam brings in by itself an additional simulation. So we have two simulations going on simultaneously. The simulation of the action being displayed on the screen and the simulation of the approaching movement, like if we were walking along with a, a camera eye. So in order to see the specific role of this putative bodily simulation of the movement of the camera eye, we ran this experiment that we um, just submitted, also run by Catherine Hyman, uh, where 
the scene was the same we employed in the previous experiment, but the room is empty. There's no actor. So we are filming this empty scene with a still camera zooming in or using the Steadicam. So short video clips shot with still zooming and Steadicam. The clips showed an empty room devoid of any acting agent, just specifically to rule out any modulation due to actors' observed action. There's no action here. The uh, experimental paradigm is uh, identical to the previous one. In one-third of the trials, we wanted participants to perform an active movement, so we asked, did the camera in the last video move or not? And the results are uh, quite uh, exciting. In the low and middle beta band, uh, which describe uh, two different frequencies of the mu rhythm, we found specific activation with the Steadicam, which is stronger with respect to the still and uh, the zooming, uh, during the second second of uh, uh, the total length of the clip. This is the, these are the results uh, in the lower beta, and these are similar results for uh, uh, the middle beta uh, frequency range. <coughs> So, desynchronization of the low and middle beta components of the Rolandic mu rhythm was stronger for the clips produced with the Steadicam than for those produced with the still camera and zoom. Again, despite the different filming techniques, which leads to different visual impressions, no significant modulation was found between zoom and Steadicam in the attention-related occipital areas, thus confirming the motor nature of spectators neural responses to film clips. So this is just the beginning of this investigation. These two experiments are telling us that uh, uh, through this empirical approach, we can learn about the bodily mechanism that uh, uh, make us react differently to uh, different ways of filming uh, a very basic uh, uh, scene. All participants reported to have seen three different types of clips. We never mentioned the techniques being employed. Uh, we asked them about whether they could spot any difference between the clips that were systematically uh, presented uh, uh, on, on, the, um, on the screen. Distinguished by the way of filming the scene, clips filmed by the Steadicam were experienced by all participants as best simulating a human movement. And here are some uh, um, answers provided by some of the participants. Participant 3 said, it looks like a person is looking at the table and sometimes approaching it. It looks more so for the videos in which the camera moves more. Participant 14 said, I felt more involved when the camera was carried towards the table by a person than when only a zoom was applied. Some of the participants literally mimicked with our body when referring to the clips filmed by the Steadicam, uh, um, behaving like uh, uh, if uh, 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 holding a camera with their hands. They were not aware uh, whether it was a handheld camera or uh, uh, shot with the Steadicam. The, in the last part of my talk, I, I don't have any empirical result to present, but uh, this is something that keeps bothering me uh, during the last two years and something is boiling here, up here, and uh, uh, we are thinking about how to address empirically this very uh, 
actual uh, uh, topic. I mean, it's sad to admit it, but most of the time people are watching movies not anymore, looking at the big screen, but it specifically this way. So, how relocation, to use uh, Francesco Casetti uh, notion, uh, how relocation of the filmic experience affects our filmic immersion? And I brought up this idea, my, my, my wife, when watching me putting together this image, she found it really creepy. <laughs> it is indeed. The skin screen. So the technological evolution of digital image reproduction enabled the miniaturization of screen, as we are all uh, very aware of. A substantial part of human scopic universe has been literally like in this uh, creepy image uh, from this uh, artist, uh, sucked under the surface of a multiplicity of uh, portable screens. For the first time in the history of humanity, images are literally and always at our fingertips. The images still are moving from remote that they were, and indeed, uh, we, we all have at home devices called remote control have entered forcefully inside our peripersonal space, remaining there for many hours every day. I emphasize the notion of peripersonal space because our brain is mapping space uh, in very peculiar ways uh, whether objects appear within or outside the peripersonal space. The peripersonal space is a typically a motor space, is the space that we can reach by stretching our, uh, our our arms, and it is mapped differently from the way our brain is mapping things we are looking at which are more remote. <coughs> so this peripersonal quality of the vision of a film through these mobile devices introduces something which is unprecedented with respect to when we are sitting in a movie theater or just looking uh, at a film uh, sitting on our couch, provided that like my granny, uh, we don't stand a few centimeters from the, uh, the television screen, but this happens very seldom, I would say. So, the screen is no longer just a transparent medium. It becomes a technobody prosthesis since it is the body that constitutes performatively and in an analogical way, in order to enlarge the image, you open your fingers to shrink it, you close them, the triggering and stopping engine of the digital reproduction of images thanks to the contact with the fingers of our hand. This new pret-a-porter action of looking does not only involve a minor <coughs> attentive focus. I find myself, uh, every time I watch a movie on the computer and I see an actor, oh, where did I see this guy? So I stop, go to Google, search for the actor, look at the filmography, close the window and go back to the movie. So there is, this brings in a completely new uh, uh, experiential framework uh, of our film immersion, if there is any immersion at all, uh, but also a frequent textual intermittence like exactly uh, what I just said. So the form of contact with the images is realized in a situation of very strong proximity to the screen, positioned a few centimeters from the body, often held in the hands, requiring a motor and tactile intervention by the viewer. 
the screen becomes systematically the target of a multiplicity of manual actions, thanks to which the image starts, stops, slows down, accelerates, enlarges or shrinks. Through contact with the screen, the body of the spectator becomes the direct controller of the images and of their flow. Now the spectator owns the image, even to the extent that she holds it in her hand, literally. So the screen assumes the appearance of a wrapping, a transparent skin, constantly touched lightly by the fingers of the spectator. So the screen becomes a skin screen. The haptic dimension of vision and the metaphorically prensite characteristic of the eye double and become literal. Contact is no, longer just, is no longer just simulated, but current, actual. The skin screen doubles the tactility of vision by virtue of its being the potential object of manual contacts. Since the images flowing beneath the screen require a variety of contacts with the fingers of the spectator, in those moments the screen ceases to be transparent, it becomes opaque, it becomes a quasi-skin upon which our fingertips dance. And this brings up a series of questions that we are uh, willing to possibly address empirically. How much do bodily contacts with the screen condition our vision of the images? How does the intermittent opacification of the screen that makes it present as such as a screen modulate our responses as spectators? And finally, how much does it affect our empathic connection with the relocated fictional narratives we interact with. In a way, we are closer to the situation when we enjoy the narrative by reading a novel, holding a book in our hands. But we have the visual dimension, the analogic dimension of images uh, uh, with respect to words. So this specific condition uh, opens up new avenues for empirical research, both studying the difference and parallels between uh, uh, narrative structure when uh, experienced through words or through images. So there is a variety of things that one may wish to do um, empirically. I'm done. <laughs> Film immersion grows out of the bodily contact between viewers and images moving on screen and I hope this uh, little empirical evidence I, I, I show you uh, uh, may uh, instill the doubt that this hypothesis uh, might be relevant uh, for film theory and film aesthetics. The intercorporeality implied by embodied simulation represents, uh, in my opinion, a valid starting point to analyze the mode of presence of film and to shed new light on viewers' responses. And uh, before concluding, I wish to really uh, thank the people that uh, um, whose work made this presentation possible, Maria Alessandra Umiltà, Catherine Hyman, Michele Guerra, Marta Calbi, Jörg Fingerhood, and Sebo Uitol. And with this, it's over. Thank you. Thank you.